This is the Return to Order Moment with Edwin Benson. Bringing you insights, analysis, and information for a culture in crisis. St. Peter Orsiolo, a truly heroic military leader and a warrior against himself. What does it mean to say that a man was a warrior against himself? That concept is one that is entirely absent in our modern world, which teaches us that the most important interest is our own. However, this meditation on the life of St. Peter Orsiolo by Professor Plinio Correa de Oliveira carries a message that is diametrically opposite to that of the modern world. In it, we see a man who set out to conquer himself. He had money, power, and position, yet he saw that only by abandoning them could he conquer his own sinful nature. We would all do well by considering the example of the little-known St. Peter Orsiolo, as written by the founder of the international TFP movement, Professor Plinio Correa de Oliveira. I will begin with some notes from Rohrbacher's Lives of the Saints. The biographical summary is as follows. Quote, St. Peter Orsiolo was born in 928 and had a busy life. The son of an important local family, he was the Doge of Venice. At age 20, he commanded a fleet entrusted to him to destroy pirates infesting the Adriatic Sea. He is believed to have taken part in the popular uprising of 976, which resulted in the death of Doge Peter Candiani IV, as a fire destroyed his palace and part of Venice. Orsiolo succeeded Candiani IV and was an energetic administrator, tactful and untiring. As soon as he found himself in power, he set about repairing the damage caused by the fire, starting with restoring St. Mark's Basilica. A complex, passionate personality, he aroused admiration when, on September 1, 978, he secretly left the city at night and joined the Benedictine Abbey of Cusa in Rossillon between France and Spain. Under the direction of the holy abbot Guerin, St. Peter Orsiolo led an austere life, entirely devoted to prayer and struggle until he died to himself. He breathed his last in 987 and left an only son, who became one of Venice's greatest and most celebrated doges. Unquote. This text takes us back to a time and a completely different situation from what we are used to. You have to imagine the city of Venice in a world completely different from ours. All of you have heard about Venice, a fairy tale enchanting city built on a lagoon in northern Italy on the Adriatic Sea. Initially, there were a series of small islands in this lagoon. In the 4th century, when barbarians invaded the West, some peasants in the neighborhood fled to those islands to escape murder. There they began trading with the East, became rich, and built the original city in the lagoon. As time passed, the islands no longer sufficed to build more houses and palaces, 
So they carried out extraordinary architectural works of art by filling land in some spots and constructing houses and palaces on stilt foundations, even in the sea. So after some years, Venice was built. A true marvel. To have an idea of Venice, you must imagine a city in which all its streets are canals filled with seawater, where people go straight out of their homes into gorgeous boats with elegantly rounded prows and sterns. They are steered by gondoliers, who do not honk today's shrill horns, but sing when they come close to corners. They sing with a beautiful melodic voice that reverberates in the distance, and you hear the oars stirring those waters as the gondolas move along. Today, the gondolas are black, but in the time of St. Peter Orsiolo, they were golden gondolas with beautiful awnings, cushions, and rugs that constituted a kind of tail as the gondola glided slowly through the seas. To understand the prestige, beauty, and grandeur of Venice, you must imagine it all lit up at night, with lights from the palace reflecting on the sea and the gondola's passengers listening to people laugh, smelling the aroma of food, and hearing the clinking of wine glasses inside the grand palaces. Today, Venice is still standing with its palaces and islands and visited by ecstatic tourists from around the world. My arrival in Venice caused one of the strongest impressions I ever had. St. Mark's Basilica, mentioned in St. Peter's Orsiolo's biography, was all lit up from a tower built in the time of St. Pius X, done to restore an ancient tower that illuminated the basilica with lights of different colors. One of the leading European orchestras performed a concert in the public square. Chairs were placed in the open air in the square and sold for the concert. As the music played, an artist in the tower would change the colors of the lights illuminating the basilica. When the music was at its saddest, the light grew darker, and the basilica's metallic ceilings turned a deep blue. When the music became more cheerful, a golden light appeared, and we had the impression that the basilica accompanied the concert. When I arrived, I observed and did not say a single word. I simply watched, ecstatic to the end. I paid even more attention to the colors and the basilica than the music, because despite being played by a great orchestra, the music became an accessory to that fairy tale-like display of lights over the basilica. I can't help but remember all this when reading the life of this Doge of Venice. The word Doge is an archaic Italian form of Duce, or Chief. He was the head of Venice, the Duke of Venice. He had to belong to a noble family and was elected by a famous council of ten. He dressed in a robe of purple silk that formed a sort of tunic with a kind of halo that he carried around. His head was covered with a forward-pointing cap that covered his whole face. It was an imposing outfit. 
Every year, the doges of Venice attended a feast called the Betrothals with the Sea. It was Venice's symbolic marriage to the sea. In a golden ship called the Bucentar, the doge, followed by hundreds of small golden ships of the Venetian nobility, went to the high seas and threw a ring into the sea, symbolizing the city's marriage to the Adriatic Sea. As he returned, all the bells of Venice would be ringing. The people would party in the public square, whole oxen were roasted, wines were distributed, and the people sang and played. It was the popular joy of the Festival of Venice. It is in this environment that you have to see this future saint. He is an extraordinarily precocious man who commanded ships at the age of 20 to fight the pirates that infested the Adriatic Sea off the coast of Venice. Fighting those pirates at the time was a work of vital importance. These pirates had ships and sailed close to nations such as Venice. They stole boats with all their cargo, reduced their Catholic crews into slavery, and sold them in the East. Accordingly, a passenger on such a ship would run the risk of never going to confession or receiving any sacrament again. He would spend his whole life as a slave to a pasha, a sultan, in some unknown place. The sultan, or pasha, could kill him from one moment to the next, because as a slave, he was the property of his master, who could do with him whatever he wanted. Therefore, fighting piracy was an elevated work of apostolate that required courage. At twenty, this young man was directing fleets of Venetian warriors fighting pirates. It was no easy task, because those rowing on his ships were also pirates who non-pirates had enslaved. So when a pirate ship came near, the rabble below, though chained and unable to escape, began to cheer for the pirates. Thus, Orseolo needed to terrify those outside and inside. And he knew how to instill fear throughout his presence in his ship and the entire fleet. He, a lad of twenty, gained such a reputation in this fight that he became one of the foremost people in Venice. Then, he supposedly led a revolution in Venice. The record in this matter is very dubious that set the whole city on fire and burned almost the entire island. I do not remember what caused that revolution, but it is strange to see this man leading it, because a saint must not be a revolutionary, but stand with the party of law. St. Thomas Aquinas defines revolution as illegitimate, except in very rare cases, because there is no right to start a revolution. Yet, we see this man making a revolution and winning at tremendous risk, because, according to the customs of the time, the vanquished were either killed immediately without trial or suffered terrible torture. 
One of the tortures was to trap the prisoner in a giant cage at the entrance of the Doge's palace. He could not get out. He was exposed to sun, rain, and wind, good and bad weather, without awnings or anything, and living off of what they gave him. Political opponents passed by, hurled insults, and he couldn't say anything because they were out of reach. If a friend passed by in a good mood, he would talk to him. If in a bad mood, he waved goodbye. He couldn't run after his friend because he was trapped. He might stay there for years. Powerful men with great force of resistance sometimes lived in those cages for four, five, or eight years. Peter Orsiolo faced all those risks and overcame them. He deposed the government and had himself elected Doge of Venice and immediately began the city's reconstruction with an iron fist. So present-day Venice was born from that fire, with all the splendor that successive centuries added to it. He rebuilt St. Mark's Basilica, imposed justice, and then was done with his public life and career. As Doge of Venice, he headed one of Christian Europe's most brilliant and wealthiest cities. Now comes the moment of grace. A man with the temper of steel, accustomed to winning, commanding, and dominating, is suddenly touched by grace. He probably recognizes what was evil in a life where many aspects were also good. He abandons everything, flees in fear that they might hold him back, and goes to a distant monastery as a humble penitent. At that time, there was a considerable distance from Venice to Rossillon between France and Spain. In that abbey, he becomes a humble friar. It is a complete change of scenery. A man who was a lion becomes a lamb. A man who used to be bossy becomes obedient, submitting, doing everything his superior tells him to do, and renouncing everything life has given him. Now he is an anonymous person in the habit of a simple monk who only prays the daily office, works the land, read, expiates, and asks forgiveness for his sins, imploring God's mercy. It is a complete 180-degree change. As the saint begins to be born, we see the monk's profile emerge and gradually erase that of the doge. God blesses his renunciation, and graces begin to rain down upon him. His virtue goes far beyond ordinary virtue. From a good monk, he becomes a saint and expires surrounded with admiration and general veneration. He is now a saint canonized by the church. You see what is an immense transformation took place in this man. Let us analyze him to understand what a monk is and how today's world has a false idea of a monk. When you hear talk about a monk, 
the idea that comes to mind is that of a calendar I once saw. It showed a pleasant avenue inside a park with beautiful trees and a peaceful person sitting there. It was a photograph of a painting. A nun in the habit was seated on a stone bench in the shade and underneath read the caption, Peace in the Cloister. So everyone thinks life in the cloister is spent entirely and peacefully under trees. A semi-still peace that never has ups nor downs or is never disturbed by struggle. So we form the idea that nuns and monks live like that. We leaf through these medieval albums, see those arched cloisters, and imagine a man praying the breviary there. One arch succeeds another, all beautiful and harmonious. A friar strolls through the cloister, walking from side to side, and these are his days. Every day is an arch, and so is every year. His life is a walk through the arched cloister, and his days are equally harmonious. If this were a monk's life, then a monk should be soft, because everything in his life is calm and pleasant. He takes it easy and never has any obstacles. He eats, drinks, and sleeps without worrying about tomorrow. God protects his health. He has no annoyances, and everything runs on track. At the moment of death... He has an extraordinary ecstasy, smiles, and his soul rises to heaven. The monk is over. Many people have this idea, but that is not what a monk is. A monk must have a temper like St. Orciolo's. He is a man of fire and iron, a burning soul capable of commanding armies ruling countries, and facing all things in life. He remains like that after becoming a monk. It is not to say that when he became a monk, he suddenly softened and turned into a wet noodle, but the opposite. He takes his warrior soul to the monastery, and there he begins to face a struggle a thousand times greater than the fight against others. Do you know what this fight is? It is the fight against ourselves. An energetic man does not dominate others, but masters himself, because it takes a lot more energy for me to say no to myself than to others. I only need to have a strong voice and be bossy to say no to someone else. I jump in his face and shout, No! He is frightened and understands, and that's the end. It is enough for me to be a human beast to impose my will upon others. It suffices to have the personality to command. But the hardest thing is to say no to myself. When we are too lazy to work, we must say no to laziness. When we are too lazy to pray, we must say no to laziness. 
When someone in authority orders us, we must say no to our spirit of revolt and obey because it is a legitimate command. Like this, we fight against ourselves. The moment a temptation of impurity asks us for an infamous thought or gesture, to say no because it is unlawful not to be pure. For this reason, I refuse that thought, however attractive it might be. This requires much greater energy than commanding others, and it is the primary energy required of a Catholic. It is the incredible energy of a monk and everyone else, because the monk must set an example for others. When it is time to rule, those who rule themselves know how to rule others. Because whoever is in charge has a sense of duty. Having the notion of duty, if he has to confront someone, he does it as long as it is his duty. No one can bend a true believer of our Lord Jesus Christ and Our Lady in the fulfillment of his duty. He knows how to say no. He is an invincible soul, an insurmountable barrier. That is what a real monk is. St. Peter Orsiolo took these personality treasures to the convent. Instead of becoming a drooling, sloppy, mushy monk, he even increased his energy and combativeness. He is able to dominate himself as he had dominated others and become a true hero of the faith by practicing heroic virtue. When the church canonizes a saint, she says he is a hero. The words saint and hero are synonymous. Every saint is a hero and every true hero is a saint. A hero who is not a saint has some things in which he is not heroic. He who is holy is a hero in all things. When St. Orsiolo died, his soul had taken heroism to its zenith. He had the fullness of the heroism of the saints. When he expired, he left behind not only an Adriatic Sea with humiliated and intimidated pirates and a rebuilt Venice destined to be the admiration of centuries, but something much more beautiful. He left for the world the example of a saint. In the 19th century, there was a famous French writer, Victor Hugo, who was one of the most celebrated men of his time. Commenting on the death of Don Bosco with a close friend, he said, He will certainly be canonized. He added, The only true glory that never ends is the glory of the saints of the Catholic Church. In one or two thousand years from now, when all of us are forgotten, the Church will still be celebrating Mass in their praise. Churchgoers worldwide will remember their existence, but we will disappear. True glory belongs to them. St. Orsiolo lived in the year 900. However, 
a thousand years later, a Christian civilization exists, and St. Peter Orsiolo is remembered. St. Orsiolo could not imagine that such a land would exist. Yet because of the immortality of Catholic saints, this land was bound to hear his praise. From the heights of heaven, this saint is watching, and the angels present these words and your presence to him. That contributes to his extrinsic glory, and he blesses and prays for us from heaven. What will you ask him in addition to such a blessing? The grace of becoming saints like him, doing what he did against the pirates of his time for the TFP. That is, to oppose today's pirates, communists, and revolutionaries, and much more. Let's ask him to have the courage he showed in the first part of his life against the enemies of the church and the courage he displayed in the second part of his life against ourselves and our shortcomings. Let us ask St. Orsiolo to implore this from Our Lady, from whom all prayers ascend and all graces descend from Our Lord. This concludes St. Peter Orsiolo, a truly heroic military leader and warrior against himself, by Professor Plinio Correa de Oliveira. Thank you for listening. Return to Order, of which this podcast is a part, strives to be a source of light in a dark and disordered world. Your prayers are appreciated. We publish a new episode every week as Tuesday becomes Wednesday at midnight. You can hear our programs in two ways. The first is to subscribe through your favorite podcast provider. Another is to go to our website, www.returntoorder.org, and click on the podcast link at the top of the page, which will take you to a list with the most recent podcast on top. Listeners can help Return to Order be more effective by giving us a five-star rating with their favorite podcast service. Subscriptions and high ratings mean that more people will find the Return to Order moment online. We would also like to recommend Mr. John Horvat's book, Return to Order. It is available as a free download on our website, www.returntoorder.org, or in printed and recorded form through our bookstore. All rights are reserved. Copyright 2023 by the American Society for the Defense of Tradition, Family, and Property, T.F.P.